Hello, welcome to the Public Art Field Guide. This is a walking tour exploring some of Melbourne's permanent, temporary and hypothetical public art from four different perspectives. I'm Linda Roberts, a researcher investigating how we make art public. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are walking on traditional lands of the Boonarong and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty has never been ceded on these lands and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This land has long been a place of teaching, learning and creativity. I honour what has come before, what remains and the power in us all to make positive change. For this Public Art Field Guide, we will be looking into how a series of permanent and temporary public art projects within Southbank Precinct and beyond came to be, and in turn, what forces shaped these projects. We will be discussing projects that have been led by philanthropists, government administrators and politics, media as well as direct artist action. Understanding what has gone before while seeking to reflect on knowledge gleaned from past successes and failures was a critical part of my role as the Public Art Program Manager at the City of Melbourne between 2014 to 2017. Similar to the Artist Placement Group, I believe that the context is half the work and this guide today extends on this idea with walking and conversation as a form of site locative research and exchange. So to help with the conversation today, writer, broadcaster and curator Sarah Workmaster joins me as respondent. Here we are at Queen Victoria Gardens and what we're looking at here is a traditional Victorian era landscape. As you can see the gardens are relatively unchanged uh, and this is due to a heritage overlay. And the public art we can see here are an example of how the city used to acquire public artworks prior to the establishment of the City of Melbourne Public Art Program. In the 1920s, the city's Parks and Gardens Committee acquired works, either purchasing sculptures directly from artists or by donation by philanthropists or organisations. Generally, these works were created without a site and placed into the landscape for quiet contemplation or relocated from their intended site, such as the Pathfinder here, which is on loan to the city from Rio Tinto. The two projects in the gardens that we'll be exploring today reveal a tale of two philanthropists, Naomi Milgram Foundation and Wonderment Walk Victoria. And we'll be exploring their modes of operation and their legacy in both the gardens here, but the city more broadly. First is M Pavilion, which we can see here. It's a project that shifts the garden's historical condition temporarily through a self-initiated philanthropic installation commissioned by the Naomi Milgram Foundation. This is an ongoing partnership with the city and state governments and corporate sectors, plus a broader creative community of Melbourne as collaborators. This could be seen as Melbourne's version of the Serpentine Pavilion in London. It's commissioned leading local and international architects to develop a pavilion over the past five years. Naomi Milgram Foundation has worked closely with City of Melbourne with its siding and installation. And it's its temporary nature that allows it to work around the heritage controls on the site. This year's pavilion is designed by Barcelona-based architect Kame Pinoche. Her design employs timber screens like origami folds that touches and pulls up and draws in the lawns of the Queen Victoria Gardens. It also frames, as you can see, the city beyond. While the architecture is important, it's actually the space it creates for a public program that I believe makes the most significant impact in Melbourne. 
In 2014, Naomi Milgram described the pavilions and the M Pavilion program as transporting the whole idea of a meeting place. And it is a space for public conversation and activity focusing on art, architecture and design, like this walk today. Initially, it was fully curated when it was launched, um, but it now runs like an open call for activities from creative collaborators like myself and the facilitation of the Public Art Field Guide, while it still produces large-scale events through the three months of its programs while it's on site. And in that way, it's opening up and letting in other voices um, beyond their highly and tightly curated program. In a way, the measure of success for M Pavilion could be seen as its durable legacy for creating ongoing social connections and memory. Speaking of social connections, who do you think the M Pavilion is for and who engages, which communities engage with the M Pavilion? Yeah, I think that's a really uh, great question to consider. With this focus on art and design and, you know, the creative community, in some ways it's, while it has a really general and broad kind of open program, it is kind of talking to a quite specialised community in a way. Uh, and you know, it is where, it is the site where most, a lot of architects will gather over the summer to talk about the conditions of the city, um, just as it will be for artists to discuss critical issues as well. I mean, something I've noticed, and I ride past the M Pavilion on my way home every evening. And for me, what's really interesting is the M Pavilion has, it's, it's almost like this great party diagram of the pavilion as this piece of architecture. And then you have the security guard that is the lone security guard that sits there and is kind of looking after the pavilion itself. And I wonder about the community that sits around that security guard and whether their communities feel welcomed to join. I do think that M Pavilion has opened up a range of new programs that enables accessibility. And earlier this morning we had a number of young children here um, working uh, on a workshop with um, parents. So I think that there's diversity of ages, but the types of communities, the diversity of those communities, is it still quite an elitist space? Is it enabling? How, how does a program like this open up to a broader community? I mean, it's interesting thinking about the methods of how you would open up a site to other voices. Moving beyond the social legacy, another legacy of M Pavilion has been the gifting of them to the city at the end of their season. And this was a deal struck by then Lord Mayor Robert Doyle back in 2014. So when I started in the city around that year, M Pavilion was a really interesting model to look at in terms of temporary and permanent public art commissions. It had multiple partners. And it meant that some of the city's restrictions on being able to directly appoint a creative or a designer could be worked around. It activated the same site over a number of years, but which kind of built kind of a memory on that site over a number of years. It also was an interesting funding model and because it provided a mixed economy. The City of Melbourne supported M Pavilion in the production and install of the project and then that went towards a permanent asset, which then they gained. And I wonder whether that went towards then, uh, in terms of an economic model, enabled the city to then to depreciate the funds that they'd put towards, or the resources that they'd put towards the pavilion, um, depreciating that over 25 years. 
As in Pavilion is a temporary project, and as the pavilion is gifted to the city, a permanent site isn't always determined when a pavilion is designed or commissioned. And that means that the city needs to find each pavilion a new home. Public land is at a premium in a growing city and it's sometimes a race against time to find an appropriate site before the next end pavilion is launched. And there is a danger that pavilions will be plonked in their new home, just like the commissioning of sculptures here in the gardens in the 1920s. Uh, but now it's architecture pavilions that are kind of an expanded form of public art that are now being plonked across various parts of the urban landscape. More recently, the design of the pavilions have taken this into account by integrating the landscape into their concepts. So, so that they feel like they're part of a site when they land in their permanent home. Only one out of the past five pavilions have been installed in a public park within the municipality of, of Melbourne. Others have gone into private open spaces, so the Hellenic Museum or the Melbourne Zoo, or they've gone outside the municipality like Monash University, um, which is out at Clayton. How these are programmed and their success as meeting points, which was the original intention by Naomi Milgram, in their new sites has yet to be determined. Have you visited any of the pavilions that have moved to different sites? The second pavilion, which was designed by Amanda Levite, that one is in a public space, in a public park in Melbourne. Uh, it's down at Docklands. Uh, this is a very delicate, light structure. So it's beautifully placed within the landscape, but it doesn't support gathering spaces for community. And, and it would be great to go down there on a weekend. It, it probably is being used um, by the residents down there. That's the lily pad yeah. and pavilion? Yeah, so beautiful kind of swaying like petals as a roof, so very delicate structure. Do you think the fact that they're in private spaces don't allow the public to engage with it as much? Maybe the intention, because they're on private spaces, the intention is that those organisations will enable a public program to sit and to, that they will manage a some sort of activation program. So the city's deferred that responsibility to another organisation and that might be the appeal of putting those pavilions into a privately managed public space. I don't think the pavilions, that, that idea of mass public appeal is, when once it's a permanent structure, whether that's the key objective. Because other than the Mandalevite one, there really isn't one that you can go and visit very easily, unless you pay for going through and walking into the Melbourne Zoo, or uh, if there's an event on uh, for the um, Hellenic Museum, um, so, you know, the Sean Godsell Pavilion is all closed up. You can't even access it. You know, it's got to open up, um, which is the first end pavilion. It will be very interesting to see where this end pavilion lands within the municipality or, with, or beyond, and to see whether this work might uh, enable public accessibility. What happens to these end pavilions once the city runs out of space? Well, the city's already running out of space. Public space is already at a premium. The city is growing at an exponential rate. And this is part of the issue that we're gonna talk about in our next work, um, which is really talking about we, the city, we, the city's trying to carve out and take over roads as a way of opening up new public space. So maybe M Pavilion is only for a period of time. Maybe it's actually asking a question back to this heritage laden site, asking about what are contemporary conditions and contemporary 
uh, uses of a site that is so, uh, you know, it's kind of hamstrung by heritage overlays.